in fact in my vocabulary you know i i don't think of direct to consumer the way most people do for me is and i don't even think of challenger brands so challenger by definition means you're taking someone on right you're taking you're challenging someone so i've always stuck to and continue to use the term insurgent brand Hello and welcome to this episode of Direct to a Billion Consumers. My name is Arjun Vedyan. I'm your host. Today, I'm very excited to have the first investor on our show, Deepak Shadadpuri. Deepak is the founder of DSGCP, one of the most active investors in the challenger consumer brand ecosystem. I must admit that for the last seven years, I followed Deepak's newsletter on consumer brands, and I absolutely love it. Deepak is one of the earliest investors in iconic brands like Sula, Viva, Epigamia, The Moms Co, and Sleepy Owl, among 50 others. and he's a true champion of the D2C ecosystem. He's someone I've learned a lot from and I'm so I'm personally excited for all of you to learn from him too. Thanks so much for being on the show Deepak. Arjun, thank you for having me and uh, excited to be on the show. Awesome Deepak, it's been a long professional journey actually to starting DSG but you've been an investor for a very long time. So many people actually don't know about your investing journey prior to setting up this fund. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, let me try and keep it short. So DSG started 8 years ago in 2012 and my investment career started in 1999. So I had 13 years of uh, investing prior to starting DSG CP. You know, I was at a consultant at Bain and in 1999 three of us from Bain joined Reuters, the news and media agency, who were amongst Europe's first corporate venturing arm. And the mandate for the fund at that point was to invest in technologies and businesses that were disrupting the core business of Reuters. So for those of you who know Reuters, either know the news agency or know Reuters as the business information data company. The bulk of the business is the business data analytics company. And what we used to do and continue to do is actually in every investment bank or every trading house, you see loads of terminals. And in those days, we were the market leader. Bloomberg wasn't even around. And to facilitate those trading terminals, and allowing trades to go through Reuters used to dig up roads ray fiber optic cables sell you terminals and charge you a huge fee for transmitting content information and uh, data so that you can trade and transact at the same time in the 90s uh, technology was evolving then what is today the internet was sort of starting to bubble up and the CPO at Reuters was very concerned that the new technology which became the internet would disrupt what Reuters was doing which was charging a lot of money for giving you sort of a private trunks to get data which has actually played out over the last 25 years so i joined reuters i spent 4 years with them my mandate was to make investments in europe and asia in particular spending more time in asia looking for technologies that could disrupt reuters so at that point i started coming to india on a regular basis i was there every month for 3 and a half years and what i saw that excited me wasn't the technology landscape what excited me was the consumer landscape i happened to have sort of been invited to india for the first time by my classmate at business school Minal Badrani who co-founded Safran Art with her husband Dinesh and on my first trip to India I actually met one of their best friends who had just sort of come back from California he said Deepak my name is Rajiv uh, I used to work at Oracle and I am going to start making wine and I've got this plot of land in Nashik and in a year and a half when the grapes are harvested I'm going to bottle India's first new new world wine and we became very good friends so i've known rajiv before sula was even launched uh, and over 4 years i saw rajiv build sula 
bootstrapping it, friends and family. And as he started growing bigger, it was a challenge raising capital. Because at that point, if we look back in India in 2001, 2002, 2003, the venture market was very nascent. There were very few venture funds. And all the venture funds were focused on technology. So if you were a founder building a business which had nothing to do with tech and you were loss making so could not get bank loans, it was very difficult to actually raise venture capital. And over two or three years, I saw what Rajiv was doing. And I was fortunate to meet a lot of other entrepreneurs who were chasing their dream or their passion, who wanted to build a business that was not necessarily an e-commerce or outsourcing or a technology business. What I did in 2004 was I resigned from Reuters. I raised my own fund called Jam India. And the hypothesis then was to invest in companies that were building brands for the new India, the new consumer. It may or may not be technology. And I made five investments out of the Gem India Fund in 2004 and 2005. The first investment was what is Sula Wines. The second one was Saffron Art, the large online art auction house. Uh, the third was Clear Trip, which was one of the two startups at that point, alongside Make My Trip, who was trying to compete with Expedia. The fourth was a company called Baker Circle, which is India's largest manufacturer of frozen dough and confectionery today. And the fifth was a QSR Chinese restaurant chain called Mark Pai. And that's how my journey with consumers started. Fast forward to 2012, when I moved back to Singapore, and I had a time to look back at the 2004 and 2005 portfolio. And what was a hypothesis then played out really well. Sula Wines, Saffron Art, Clear Trip, all three were number one or number two in their space in India. I had captured massive market share. All three companies had raised significant, significant amounts of capital after my initial investment from sort of marquee venture and private equity funds. And India was exploding. So what was a high, sort of a hypothesis or a thesis in 04 and 05 sort of proved itself out by 2012. And because I sort of was moving back to Singapore after a 22-year sort of a stint abroad, I had the opportunity to sort of re recalibrate what I wanted to do. And I focused and doubled down on sort of building a platform exclusively dedicated to backing entrepreneurs, building sort of consumer brands focused on India and Southeast Asia. So Deepak, actually challenger brands and D2C are buzzwords now. They're very much in vogue. But when you started off, this wasn't the case in India, at least. Um, so tell me, what got you so excited about consumer brand and specifically consumer-focused businesses that you decided to spend 100% of your time on this when you set up the fund? You know, someone who is a visitor to India, you know, as a child, I used to come and visit extended family. Then most of my family left India. So I, there, was a, there was a period of time I had not come to India for 18 or 19 years. My first trip as an adult was in 1998. And between 1998 and I guess 2012, I saw India change, emerge and thrive. And what was driving that? A very young demographic, growth in GDP, growth in per capita income. And at least in the metros, there was a clear, clear, clear demand for new things. New India was making money. New India wanted to consume. The discretionary wallet was exploding and they wanted to spend. And if you look back at India, even 20 years ago, many of the brands that were available on the shelves were still older brands are not necessarily addressing the needs of the new India. And you could see that technology was evolving on multiple dimensions, but I look at it on two dimensions. Number one, the world was becoming flat. So because of social media, Facebook, Instagram, pin interest, you know, consumers in India were looking at acting upon 
and thinking like their counterparts in any part of the world. They're watching the same next Netflix shows, same music on Spotify. Obviously, you got to add the whole Bollywood and cricket element to it. But you know, 18-year-old or a 21-year-old or a 25-year-old in Bombay or Pune or Bangalore had similar aspirations as counterparts in Hong Kong, Paris, LA or New York. But the availability of products on shelf in India was not the same as those markets. So they were seeing celebrities or friends of people talking about cold brew coffee, talking about, you know, Greek yogurt, talking about plant-based products, all of which were not native to India. And you knew these consumers would continue demanding. So the call we made was, you know, there will be brands the incumbents in India, the entrenched CPG companies just move too slowly and addressing the opportunity of the consumer. So that's how consumers were evolving. The second thing that was evolving also because of technology was how you reach the consumer. In the old days, if you were a consumer brand, so think of the Dabur or the Godrej or the Tatas, to reach consumers, you had to be on TV or radio or print. It was very difficult, if not impossible, to address or reach consumers or small tribes of consumers or niche consumers with very specific offerings. The internet changed all of that. With internet, you could reach very, very specific target audience in a very cost-effective way. 20 years ago, without technology, there's no way a new brand could be launched, become aware, induce trial, forget about repeat cohorts. Today, that's all changed. So a new brand could launch and have a small marketing budget of two lakhs and actually reach a relevant customer base. So you knew technology would enable consumers to be reached and you already knew technology was changing the way that the Indian consumer is interacting and behaving. So you just, you just had the perfect sort of petri dish for consumers to continue demanding because they've always demanded for things. What changed was that entrepreneurs could now reach out and create products and services to meet the demands of those consumers. And I'm glad you brought up the way digital has enabled brands because that's the reason I started this podcast and it's called Direct to a Billion Consumers. I think digital now allows brands to reach a pan-India base without any offline presence and that's 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 the beautiful part about what's happened. Uh, but Deepak, you've seen various cycles of brand creation in India, right? Over the last 8-9 years that you've been building DSG but, but also before that. Right? So can you walk us through trends that you've seen stay through through the generations and what's really changed in India? You know, I like to think about it in two ways, right? And it'll be different from different perspectives. So when we started, the term D2C did not exist. And in fact, if you look at my portfolio today, you know, we've got 65 investments. The majority of our businesses did not start as direct to consumer. In fact, in my vocabulary, you know, I, I don't think of direct to consumer the way most people do. For me is, and I don't even think of challenger brands. So challenger, by definition, means you're taking someone on, right? You're taking, you're challenging someone. So I've always stuck to and continue to use the term insurgent brand. Because in our perspective, you know, we have a playbook at DSGCP and we think of markets in two broad lenses. Number one is there are, there are categories where there are existing brands. And you are right, a new brand, let's think about Viva taking on a Kremika or a Kisan, you're challenging the incumbent. So you're a challenger brand. But there are many categories which do not exist in India or it's a white space. Let me pick, I'll give you two examples. Uh, it could be Epigamia. So everyone knows yogurt, but the concept of a Greek yogurt with 10 grams of protein per serving was a relatively novel concept. Imagine launching a yogurt brand in India and calling it Greek. You know, most Indians just find it an oxymoron. It's not possible. 
A second example I'll give you is Sleepy Owl. So coffee is a known category. Lots of brands in the coffee category in India. But no one had gone out to build, produce and sell a ready-to-drink cold brew. Never existed. So, you know, we, we think of it as insurgency, which is a sort of a blend of a challenger brand or a category creator. So that's not going to change. I think what's happening now is consumers are becoming more demanding. And you see how the world has changed, right? You know, brands do not have to find the lowest common denominator for a wide audience. They can now create, package, sell brands for a very niche audience. So that's what's changed and it's continuing to change. So thanks for telling us about that because I know that the last point you mentioned on the niche audience as well, that's what's really exciting right now. You don't have to be something for everyone in the ecosystem today. So Deepak, I know you you may have been asked this question a lot of times, but I'm sure people still want to know. Investing early means you don't have as much access to data or a track record. So how do you choose the companies you want to back? Is it founder, team, product, market or all of the above? It's all of the above, but it's very, it's founder, founder, founder comes first, right? Now, everything else is 10%. And how we look at things is, again, multi-dimensional, but I'm, let me try and summarize it. We map, let's focus on India and leave out Southeast Asia for now. We sort of map out the consumer market in India and consumer is very broad. So we don't invest in every consumer market or every consumer segment. We look at trends globally. You know, what's happening in the US, what's happening in the UK, what's happening in Japan, what's happening in Singapore, what's happening in Australia. Because of how media travels, you know, people in one country talk about it and that trend often, but not always, finds a sort of a parallel in, in your home market. So we look at global trends, we look at trends that have picked up a lot of momentum and we ask ourselves, is this trend relevant to India or not? Why would Indians not follow a similar trajectory? If they were to follow it, how do we have to change the product or the service or the playbook to make it localized? The second thing we do is we look at big categories where there's been no innovation. You know, why are, you know, I won't mention brands, but you know, some of the things in India are in the same packaging they were 20 years ago. You know, it could be heritage, it could be legacy, it could be part of the brand strategy, but often is just laziness. The brand selling, it's the number one, number two, number three brand in that category. Consumers don't have a choice. Imports are expensive. So what do you do? You pick up the number one, number two, number three brand. So we map that out. We then try and figure out which opportunity is attractive. And then we do two things. We go and look for founders who already have a nascent startup in that space. They've already thought about it and, you know, they happen to coincide with our view of, of the opportunity. Or very often, you know, we have a list of things we want to do and we go out and look for founders and convince people to do it and build a new brand. So I'll give you an example of the latter. So Viraj, the founder of Viva, his family was the family behind uh, Fun Foods. They sold Fun Foods. Uh, they exited the business. I tried to invest in Fun Foods in 2004 when I was investing in Sula, but they decided not to take any sort of third-party money and were very happy to sell the business to Dr. Otka uh, a few years later. I kept in touch with Viraj over the years and I told Viraj, you know, what you were doing with mayonnaise and ketchup and sauces was interesting. But I said, no, India is changing. They want healthier products. They want low fat. They want sort of a keto-friendly. They want no additives. They want clean label. There are many other better-for-you trends that are playing out. You know, why don't we go and create a brand, start from scratch, and launch products that are new to India. So if you, you may or may not remember this. So Viraj and I spent time, we agreed to do this. We did not have a brand name. We spent about two days brainstorming before we came up with the name Viva. And you can ask me why it's called Viva. 
and we launched in India in 2013 only seven SKUs. Six of the seven was the first time that these products were available in India. It's like a chip, chipotle sauce. It was a southwestern dressing. So the Indian consumer was already aware of those products. He could get them in the restaurant. He could go to Subway and order a sandwich with these products. But there was no one in India at that point selling these products in a ready-to-use package, right? No one. We were the first. So anyone who bought it before that was buying it in a sort of apparel import shop or the product was imported and it cost 500 rupees. Um, but we developed, you know, best-in-class product for India, made in India at Indian prices. So, you know, was that insight novel? I don't know. But it took someone like Viraj to see the opportunity that we did, that we said, let's go after it. So it's, it's, it's a, we, we like building from scratch. It's a journey. And that's typical of many of the founders we've backed. You know, they, they, they have an idea or we have an idea, but they must, he or she must be passionate and totally sort of drunk the Kool-Aid and is excited to build what we hope will be the market leader in that category. I think the insight on actually going out and tracking the trend and then finding the right person to do it is very interesting and, and many people may not know that about Deepak's story with Biba but actually going in and going into the trenches with your founders is amazing and you're right. I think founder passion drives everything and eventually leads to the results. But Deepak, you know, being an investor in a company means you are responsible and invested in the success of the company but you don't get into the day-to-day running. So how do you maintain a balance between helping the founder without being intrusive? Difficult question, and I think founders are, you know, think think back of a founders. Of, see, I'm a founder. I founded DHGCP. My first investment happened to be Viva. And you can imagine when I did my first investment and I hadn't done my second or third one yet, I had lots of free time, right? So I would spend a lot of time in Viraj's office yeah. because I had not much to do. Fast forward today, we have a portfolio of 65 companies. I've got a much bigger team, but I've got too much to do. And Viraj will complain that Deepak doesn't spend enough time with me now, right? But the reality is, you know, DSG, CPR, we are there as your partners on a journey. We do not run businesses. We do not offer our services to run businesses. What we are, sort of a shepherd, a sherpa, who's there to help you when you need us, often to show you the path. But keep in mind, very often we invest in businesses that are relatively new or category creators in the market we are in. So although we have lots of learnings from other consumer brands, both in India and abroad, uh, it is a journey we do together. We go back to first principles. We understand what it is. And, you know, I think what the founders appreciate is, you know, this simple sort of a playbook lessons like, you know, what do you do? in terms of product market fit. How do you do NPD? How not to launch too many products at the same time? You know, when are you ready for a new market? When are you ready for an adjacent product? These are the common mistakes founders make and they'll continue to make them. We make the same mistake as well. But it's something we really focus and drill onto our founders. I was chatting to another founder only earlier today and I said, you know, in your perspective, you know, what's the best thing we've done for you? He said, Deepak, you know, you've done nothing for me that's valuable. I said, what? He said, the reality is, you know, you have 65 portfolio companies. Some are single founders, some are two founders, some are three founders. You have, you know, a group of 90 founders who are very active. We have a crazily active WhatsApp group. Every founder our past and present is on that WhatsApp group. Most of our learnings are coming from watching what Rajiv did at Sula Wine, what Viraj did at Viva, what Rowan is doing at Epigamia, you know, what Amulik did last week in terms of a new product at Chai Point, how he took Chai Point from a from a, from a sort of QSR and a 
office product into a packaged CPG product which you can buy on any supermarket today. You know, these are the learnings that the founders really like. They learn from each other because they know that, you know, as as the younger founders look up to the older founders, the mistakes that the older founders have made continue not only to be relevant, but are very, very valuable. And what's transpired, and this wasn't planned, is that I would say the vast majority of the DSGCP founders are very, very, very happy to get a phone call from another founder saying, Amuli, can you help? Can you just give me some advice. Often what happens, not only do they give advice, they actually help the guy out. And I think that ecosystem, I guess it was slightly easier for us because we were the first sort of consumer-focused VC and we got a lot of inbound guys coming in and we were fortunate, lucky, smart, a combination of all three to back a large number of what are today market leaders that the founders are just sort of willing to give back, spend real time helping other like-minded founders. And I think that also stems from your collaborative nature as well. I've not had the good fortune of being a part of that WhatsApp group, but but I know that the way you are, you really want to sort of give back to the ecosystem and that transcends to the founders. So, so yeah, I wish I was a part of that WhatsApp group, but I'm not. But it's never too late. You know, once a founder, always a founder, right? Because every founder I've known, after they sell the business, they become founders again. No, absolutely. One from your mouth. Happens. From your mouth to God's ears. Uh, but Deepak, you know, you must have seen thousands of pitch decks over the years and, and you've chosen your investments wisely. But what's that one trend? I'm not talking about a company. I'm just talking about a trend that, that you didn't think would become big but became really, really large. You know, food delivery. Food delivery was something I never thought would become large. I would not take meeting with food delivery companies. You know, and I you know, that, that, that was something I got very wrong. And I think... My perspective on food was with hindsight wrong. It was very polarized. I had two views of food when it should be a spectrum. Food number one is for sustenance. You need to eat to survive and to live. So therefore, you eat what you eat to satiate your appetite and to remain healthy. The second part of eating for me and continues to be so is being social. It's about meeting people, learning the story of the restaurant or the hawker or the vata pawala in Verli. And these are things you want to go, you want to go with people, you want to talk about it. So in my view, you know, if you're going to eat, you're going to either eat out or you're going to eat at home because when you're eating at home to satiate, it's a very different experience. So if I want to eat something out, you know, in my head it was, why would I bother bringing it home? Okay, I got it very wrong. Food delivery is a huge business. You know, cloud kitchens, cloud brands, virtual restaurants have clearly, clearly been very successful. And that's a trend I totally missed. Makes sense. And it's, it's it's nice to see investors like you actually talking about trends you miss. But, but you know, Deepak, D2C is a buzzword in India today and everyone seems to be talking about it. As someone who's watched the space closely for so long, what do you see happening over the next five years? Interesting question. It's a debate we have internally because, you know, if you look back in any of my fundraising decks or, and I never mentioned D2C, right? You know, yeah. I start on first principles. You know, there's a consumer, a consumer needs has needs these needs might be needs basic needs or needs he's been led to believe he needs okay so that's how brands work and the consumer wants to get that product or service he needs to satisfy those needs uh, in a way that's most convenient to him in the old days it was you know you you wanted something you went out you went out and got it maybe someone got it delivered to you depending on the product it is my view today like it was 10 years ago hasn't changed is that you need to be where your consumers want you to be. What's changed is how consumers interact with brands. In the old days, you would go out and buy something and a lot of the discovery happened offline. But think pre-internet. You didn't have a choice, right? The discovery would be at a store. 
you might or might not discover something on TV or radio or print, but you're not bombarded with new products and new categories the way you are today, especially to the level of minute detail because Facebook and Google knows everything about you. So the relevance of the ads that are coming to you is scary, never used to happen. So the world's changed today and a new brand has an option of doing three things. As I, assuming you do your NPD and everything works and, the, and, and your product market fit is good, you can ask yourself, right? You know, I know in the long run to be a very successful brand, I need to be where my consumers are. Am I in a category which lets me be only online and therefore I can potentially be a D2C only brand? Is my category one that requires me to be offline? and therefore I need to be primarily offline? Or is my brand, my category of product that lets me sort of play on both sides? My view is most brands will end up playing on both sides because there are very few categories which only happen on one parallel. And as a startup, it's difficult to do everything at the same time. The benefit a startup has today is to ask themselves, you know, do I want to launch my product, whatever the category be, offline? Do I want to do it on a marketplace and let the flip cards and big baskets and Amazon's healthy market? Or do I want to be truly D2C, which is I only sell off my own website, starting small on a Shopify shop and testing my product that way because the margins are better. I don't pay a distributor and there's no right answer. So we look at it on a very first principle basis. We look at category by category, knowing that if you are successful, the odds are you will have to move from one category to a second to a third. I think one really important insight that you mentioned, Deepak, is that all products don't actually have to be D2C. And I think now that this has become a buzzword, you also see a lot of founders trying to do things D2C, which don't necessarily be, need to be D2C. So I think... Give, give me an example of that. So, you know, I've seen a lot of high volume products like Arta, for example. Just given the volume, the unit economics don't work with D2C, right? So I think you also have to understand the unit economics of how online delivery works and what logistics costs are. Absolutely. That's a good example. And you brought up an interesting example of a category which is very large and which is so many brands and the margins can be tight. But I would even argue in that category, there's always going to be a niche who wants a story, who wants some high-end ATA milled in a very particular way from a particular farmer because he uses particular, he's organic and he he does something very different because the sand is different in Punjab, right? I'm making this up, right? Yeah. Uh, but you forget what what the world's come down to today is you can find niche over niche over niche and make a business. So you really need to know what you're trying to build and build your playbook around the brand you have. You know, just give you an example. Let me give you Epigamia, right? Epigamia was never D2C. It's a yogurt. And we said in this category, the purchase is going to happen at a supermarket or the Kirana store or in a GT store. We need to be in shelf. People need to discover us. If you're yogurt, you have little choice but to be between Danone and Amul and Nestle and Mother Dairy. And we will sort of stand out by having a different offering, higher protein, positioning ourselves as a, as a snack. I think Rohan's big insight, which worked really well, was our first marketing campaign was very clear. If you are having us as part of your meal, do not buy us. We're not dahi. Don't have us with your rice and your rotis. If you're having us as part of a meal, get your dahi. If you are having a snack in between meals, buy Epigamia, okay? We said, how do we differentiate ourselves in the market in a very crowded space? Okay, so I think that was a smart insight. And that was the first sort of yogurt brand to try and move away from yogurt as a yogurt into a snack. And it worked really well for us. 
and we did not have anything in B2C until COVID hit. So it was March 2020, April 2020. Our loyal customers on Instagram were shouting, "All the stores are closed. We can't find Epigamin." So we had trucks who used to do local delivery. So Rohan said, "Fine, you know, you order, and in three days, within 72 hours, we deliver it to you." Now that's all we could do in last minute. You know, over time, that business has become very meaningful. So we will continue to be a business that you can buy from us. I think brands like that. a more app for a subscription we are a brand you can buy on any online marketplace you know the big baskets etc and we are a brand you can buy at you know most if not every large supermarket chain and most sort of large empty stores right because a customer who buys yogurt unfortunately expects his brand or our brand to be at the point of purchase where he regularly buys his basket so we don't have a choice and i'm one of those customers who was buying epigamia d2c just when the lockdown hit so so deepak you are let me ask you let me ask you this right as a customer who bought we only launched it for customers like you because they they were complaining and you bought it d2c now that sort of covid is receding and shops are open again you know how much of the purchase of epigamia or any other product would be 100% d2c when you know you can go out and discover and walk a shop and buy stuff you could go to food hall So I'm just curious you know I think I think D2C will remain relevant but for brands who have aspirations to be large in their category it's very difficult to sort of look at a only omni channel strategy but that changes category by category because I know if you look at personal care and health and beauty there are many successful brands abroad that have taken a clear call that we're going to be only D2C and I think that also works if you are very clear what your brand stands for and and how you want to reach your consumer and i'm happy with that no and I, i'm a very biased customer i'm a big proponent of the d2c ecosystem so i don't buy anything from stores i only buy online but one last question deepak b- before we wrap i think for all the founders listening and prospective founders listening what are sectors that you are bullish on in india going forward you know we look at it at two lenses so it may or may not answer your question we look at it at sectors and so if you look at our playbook we have we think about it in as sector and theme you need to interact between the sector and the theme so we are playing sort of um 10 big themes at the moment right and you can tell me and, and often this overlap one as i as i list out my 10 10 themes you would say deepak you know epigamia could fit into three of these themes sure which is which was the intent right the more themes you fit into the more likely it is for more consumers to want to buy you so are there the themes you're thinking about healthy living people want to live healthier lifestyles this could be how they live could be what they eat could be what they put in their body it could be skin care food etc second big theme in india is aspiration and luxury no matter at which socio economic group you're in you're always aspiring to do better and you want to buy the luxury for that category number 3 is the digital consumer and this is you technology change everything you want to buy everything online so how does digital play to the consumer like yourself trend number 4 is not only healthy living but looking and feeling good healthy living is being healthy but you also know look and feel good right so this is do i look good are my clothes nice you know am i well groomed so everything to do with grooming inside and outside do i just look good and feel good number 5 is plant based alternatives there's a huge focus on the reduction of animal consumption okay you know it could be religious it could be health it could be sustainability it could be animal cruelty there are five big major trends driving the move towards less animal consumption or animal products which means there's a whole new ecosystem focused on plant based products number 
which is less relevant to India today, but I think over the next decade or two will be very big, is the humanization of pets. Look at any developed market. More and more families, or not even families, singles are owning pets, are becoming pet parents, and they're spending more on their pets than they spend on their children. Okay, we are seeing early signs of that in India, and expect a lot more happening, a lot more to happen in India on on pets. The sixth trend or theme we like is mother and baby. Because there's been very little innovation in India in the mother and baby space. The brands are have historically been very heritage, no innovation, little bit of insights. You know, things haven't changed much. The millennial digital parent does not think anywhere like their own parents or grandparents. So that's going to change. Number eight is eating on the go and snacking. So what we've noted sort of globally is the move towards people who just want smaller snacks, but more often they are always on the run, eating on the go. So something that's easy to carry, easy to eat. You know, what would the new eating on the go and snacking look like? Keeping in mind, it should interact with all the other seven things I mentioned earlier. Number nine is sustainability. As a brand, you know, are you giving back to the planet? Are you minimizing the use of plastic? You know, are your products recyclable? Because the millennial consumer who's focused on all the other nine are asking these questions from the brands they buy. If they have a choice, there are four brands. One comes in glass with a metal top and is 100% recycled and promises to give back to the environment or will be purchased over a similar brand who's in a plastic jar. We've seen the evidence in the US and UK. It will come to Asia. And the last lens we look through is the millennials and Gen Z. They just think differently, behave differently. So as we look at any opportunity or any brand, we ask ourselves, you know, if we were to put on the millennial and Gen Z filter, you know, is this brand going to be relevant to them today? And more important, as the millennials and Gen Z sort of mature over the next 20 years, will it continue to be relevant to them? Or will they be a transmittent brand that sort of falls off the radar? So we have sort of 10 themes. These themes get updated regularly. And then we sort of overlay them with the different sectors. It could be food, it could be beverage, it could be, you know, fashion, it could be uh, skincare. But I think the, the themes are more important than the underlying sectors to us. And I think having been a founder myself and, and built a consumer brand, I think I learned a lot from this conversation. Thanks for taking out the time, Deepak. And, and for all of you, thanks for listening. Until the next episode, we'd love to hear back from you on feedback, questions or anything else. I'm available on Instagram at abvedian, on LinkedIn at arjunvedian. I'd love to chat. Don't forget to click the subscribe icon. And if you like what you heard, please click the share button and share with family and friends. We're nothing without our listeners. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Bye.